Right now, it's Barry and Shauna Replay from 89.3 Moody Radio. Hey, God's Word tells you and me to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have to those who ask that question, but do this with gentleness and respect. Man, that's a challenge, especially when we are really challenged on issues like abortion and atheism and the problem of evil. You know, when an atheist might say, how could a good and all-powerful God allow evil to exist? There are people who will say the Bible is just a myth, that Jesus was just a good teacher, and then the raging issue of sex, marriage, gender that's going on in our culture right now, were to answer with gentleness and respect. And so, I don't know about you, I need some equipping, and we've got Greg Kokel to do just that. He is an apologist. He's the founder of Stand to Reason, str.org, and his brand new book is Street Smarts, Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. I'm so interested. I'd love to know, what is the tactical game plan that you use for having fruitful gardening conversations? What is this gardening language? Tell me more. Here's an aphorism. In other words, it's a truism and it spoke simply. And Jesus did a lot of these, you know, the first should be last, last should be first kind of thing. It's it's memorable. And they're very common sensible when you, many times when you think about it. And the aphorism is before there can be any harvest, there always has to be a season of of gardening, right? You know, Jesus talked in John chapter four about the the sowing season and the reaping season. He told the disciples after the conversation with the woman at the well, you are about to reap where you did not sow, mm. okay? Somebody else did the heavy lifting, they get the easy pickings. And the key here is easy pickings. When the harvest is ripe, when the fruit is ripe, it's easy to harvest. When I became a Christian in 1973, almost just two weeks away from my 50th spiritual birthday, my brother Mark had been gardening in my life for a long time, months and over actually a couple of years. But I was at a point where I was ready and he came to my apartment and he started to tell me more about Jesus. I said, Mark, you don't need to tell me any more about Jesus. I already want to become a Christian. So in a certain sense, I harvested myself. Well, of course, it was the Holy Spirit that was doing that, but it wasn't somebody pushing me, goading me to pray a prayer, okay? People will be surprised to learn that that tradition that we have is actually historically new. Middle of the 19th century, the Second Great Awakening, altar calls, and then praying to receive Christ, that kind of thing. You don't see anything like that in the New Testament, not in the Book of Acts, not in the Gospel. The Gospels and the Book of Acts have a different characterization. What you see is people communicating different aspects of the truth regarding the kingdom of God and salvation. And a big part of the good news is the bad news. And Jesus spent a lot of time talking about the bad news. You can read the Sermon on the Mount, the whole wonderful Sermon on the Mount, and you're going to get lots and lots of bad news and very little good news in the sense that we normally think of it. Here's how to be forgiven. Okay, what Jesus does is he heaps the law on people's shoulders. You know, don't commit murder. Oh, I didn't do that. Did you ever call your brother a fool? Yeah, of course, you're going to hell. That's Jesus. Don't commit adultery. Didn't do that either. Did you ever think about it? Of course, you're going to hell. Okay, this is not good news. And it wasn't until later where we see this line, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I think the main application that Jesus had in mind then was rest from the burden of the law. So notice 
all these things that are going on, which incidentally in the book of Acts keeps being referred to as speaking the word of God. They weren't speaking New Testament verses. They were communicating the message of the kingdom of God and all things associated with it, gardening, 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 gardening. And then when it came time to harvest, so to speak, Pretty much the you know the fruit falls into the basket. Mm-hmm. You know Peter gives his sermon in Acts chapter two, and they say, "What should we do?" This is the pattern. Now, here's why this is important, uh, Perry and Shona. It's important because there's a whole lot of Christians who are sitting on the bench because they understand this is a hostile culture and they don't have the answers. They're scared. I get that. I'm sympathetic. The apostles were scared. Paul was scared. Acts chapter 18, he's knocking his knees in Corinth, and Jesus has to appear to him in the middle of the night in a vision and say, don't be afraid any longer. Speak boldly. Okay, so it's normal to to face opposition like that and, and feel that way. However, we make it more difficult because we have adopted a kind of system of evangelism that asks of people to do something that is a little bit strange biblically, and that is try to get people to pray to receive Christ, okay? And it's in the tracks, and there's this, there's the prayer at the end of the thing. And, and if that's what's expected of people, I'm not against that. I've used those, and a lot of people do them to great effect. But if that's what's expected of people, they won't get off the bench. They won't get out into play, or they won't get in the garden, to mix my metaphors there a little bit. So what we've been giving them is harvesting tools when gardening is what is needed. Mm. And this is what the game plan is all about. The game plan in the book of tactics that I that I wrote a number of years ago, it's still in play. And then the street smarts, which is the one that has just come out, that is uh, a sequel to tactics. And it's the, really kind of the third step of the game plan on steroids, because I teach people how to use the game plan in answering particular questions that come up and challenges that come up in the culture. What I hear you saying is that we need to sow the seed well, to build the case for Christ well. That's our job. Move move a person a step closer by making, you know, convincing cases for Jesus. And then that word will do its work, and then there will be a harvest at some point. Yes, I, I, that's a good way of putting it, although I choose a different metaphor in the book. I, so the seed is the biblical metaphor. That's too, like, gentle for me, you know. I call it putting a stone in someone's shoe. I, I want to mm-hmm. annoy them in a good way, right? Mm-hmm. I want to get them thinking and then let that stone do its work. What is the most challenging conversation you ever had? Mm -hmm. I mean, you just got, man, there were sparks flying and you just got a lot of pushback. I know that you're a person who who can de-escalate the tension, but, but take us to a conversation where there were some sparks flying. Well, the one that comes immediately to mind wasn't actually a classical tactical conversation because in those conversations, characteristically, the sparks don't fly because of the nature of the game plan, which which we can get to. The toughest conversation I ever had was actually a radio interview on the issue of abortion with the NPR of the UK. What do they call it? Um, Oh, the BBC? The BBC. Okay. So 
it was on abortion. It was, uh, you know, over the pond. I'm being interviewed, and this was their toughest interviewer. And they have uh, their footprint kind of covers two continents. <laughs> and this gal was very aggressive, and she was looking to make me look as bad as I possibly could. <laughs> now, we have worked out the abortion issue, how to deal with the abortion issue using questions. I have two chapters on abortion in Street Smarts, so you can maneuver in all kinds of challenging situations. In this circumstance, what was amazing about it was that I sometimes, especially doing radio and tough conversations, I've got notes in front of me and I can kind of you know look at the notes. I did not look at my notes at all. It was almost like the entire conversation. I had my eyes closed. I'm listening to the interviewer and I'm I'm just paying attention to every single mm-hmm. syllable because it was such a tense situation. You think you're on the street, right? Street smarts. Your eyes are everywhere if you're surrounded by by hostels, right? You're going to watch for every little move, you know. So mm-hmm. you're not reading your kung fu notes. And this is kind of the way I found myself there. She was tough and she really really was trying to make me look bad. So in that case I had to concentrate a lot, but it wasn't a classical tactical set of circumstances because she was asking the questions on an interview all right and the person asking the questions is in the driver's seat of the conversation that's the basic rule just like here you know i'm doing all the talking i'm doing the heavy lifting but you guys are directing the conversation where you want it to go in virtue of the questions that you're asking and our game plan is built on using questions in a very particular way each of the three steps is using a different kind of question in a particular way. That is actually what keeps the Christian safe in the conversation because you're asking questions. You're not even advancing your view. Mm-hmm. And the first two steps of the game plan, that's the case. The Christian is in the uh, shallow end of the pool. They're ankle deep, right? No problem at all because of the kind of questions they're asking and they're not under fire. And this is what I want to avoid in a circumstance with a Christian. And I know that, you know, one of your questions is how did you come to that conclusion? And right. I think that's, that's amazing. But how did you, how did you maneuver out of that, you know, being the one questioned? Well, in that case, I have a very, very particular way. And we teach this at Standard Reason. It's embedded there in Street Smarts of making the case that abortion is wrong. And I don't quote Bible verses. We go to science we go to philosophy, you know, that kind of stuff. We look ethically at the question. And the issue at stake here is a single question resolves the moral question of abortion. There are practical concerns, legal concerns, but the moral question is very simple. And that question is, what is the unborn? What is the unborn? Okay. Now, it's very easy to establish with a series of questions, and this is part of the dialogue built in the book on Street Smarts. All of the issues have a series of questions that you can ask the other person that lays the foundation to get to that conclusion. But the answer is the unborn is an innocent human being. Okay. Now, if the unborn is not an innocent human being, no justification for abortion is necessary. You just get the abortion. You don't need to have all these reasons, choice and autonomy, and I can't afford it, whatever. Who cares? Just do it. But if the unborn is a valuable human being, then no justification for abortion is adequate because we don't justify killing other human beings for the reasons that people have abortion. That's the core. Okay. Now, uh, that's what I'm working at with her. I'm trying to make this case. She actually said on the air, When I said, 
life begins at a conception. Okay. I don't even deal with that issue anymore. Uh, I just ask, is it alive? I don't know. Nobody knows when life begins. I say, well, that's not my question. I just want to know is whatever that thing is inside mom, is it alive? Is it growing? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. growing. Well, then it's alive. Mm-hmm. Okay. That step is covered. This is established science. An individual human life begins at conception. Okay. All the embryology books everywhere in the whole world say the same thing. She denied that. She said, that isn't what, that isn't what our British embryologists say. I couldn't even believe it. She was flat out wrong and it served her purpose, but it's her show. So she's got the microphone, you know, in in a certain sense that the person with the microphone wins, right? So I'm at a disadvantage because she's now gainsaying a fact of science. And what am I going to say? So I just pause and say, well, I'm just going on record to say, and this wasn't a fight. I was calm and measured the whole time. I don't want to get in fights with people, and that doesn't serve any good purpose for us making our case. I just said, just just for the record, this is embryology, and you're just taking a piece away from me. That's a very important part of my argument. But nevertheless, I'll move on. You know, it's your show. But just so everybody knows, that's called narrating the argument, by the way. Will you pause and you tell everybody what's going on? or if in a hostile environment. But if you're just talking with somebody, you can pause just to make that clear to them. You know, this is an important point. You stop and you kind of recap, I guess, and narrating. And that's a very powerful technique and tool in conversing with other people. What I hear you saying is when you find yourself being questioned, you just say, just for the record, here's the established science. Yeah, in that particular case, in that particular case. But that has never happened to be other than that. Mm. You asked me for my toughest conversation. Yeah, that, was that was by it. far the <laughs> tough. And here it is, NPR. You know, and what this interviewer asked me, well, what if a woman is raped? And she's pregnant because of rape. And I said, well, what's my argument? My argument has been that the unborn is an innocent human being. Mm -hmm. Do we sacrifice the innocent unborn because of the crime of that baby's father? That's the question, right? Notice it's a question, okay? And uh, But of course, people are thinking about the mother and they're presuming a woman who's pregnant for that reason doesn't want to have the baby, which is a false presumption. I just, I know this for a fact. In some cases, yes. But anyway, it still doesn't justify killing the baby. But I just held my ground. It's Mm -hmm. not right to take the life of the baby because of the sins of the father. And I gave that answer every single time. That was a toughie. But it's possible in one-on-one conversations to avoid that kind of circumstance because you're asking questions. And so the question in that case, if somebody presses that issue, I says, do you think that the baby should surrender its life because of the sins of its father or because its existence reminds her the baby's mother of a terrible experience, which I acknowledge it's, I, it's hard to imagine anything more terrible than that for a woman to experience. However, is that a justification to kill the baby? What if you have the baby and the baby's um, two months old and you look at the baby and says, that baby looks like my rapist. Let's kill the baby. Well you, well, you won't do that. Mm-hmm. Why not? Okay, well, it's, it's, a value, it's a valuable human being. Wait, what's the difference three months ago while that same individual is inside the womb? Notice I said, what's the difference? I didn't make a claim. I mm-hmm. asked the question. So now I'm managing the conversation. 
And they're giving me, trying to give me the answers to these questions that have common sense answers that they don't want to give because the common sense answer is against their view. That's the value of being street smart, knowing the kinds of questions to ask given a circumstance you're facing that's challenging. If we were to hold a, you know, a Bible study, we were to offer a class, and we, we were to say we're going to equip you on, you know, how to handle your anxiety, we could fill the room. But if we said we're going to have a class and we're going to teach you, you know, evangelism, we'd probably fill up the anxiety room. That's right. People get anxious about <laughs> about evangelism, and I think part of that is because we're afraid that we're stepping into something where we're not sure what they're going to ask and we're not sure we're going to mm-hmm. know the answers. So mm-hmm. what are the top three questions that non-believers tend to ask? How can we be prepared for that conversation? Well, uh, I'm not sure if there's a top three. I mean, there are standard ones like the problem of evil. This happens all the time. Or atheists just say there's no evidence for God. Atheists like four to maximum 6% of the population, okay, but they're very vocal. And so folks are going to run into them a lot. And a lot of times in the context of of some terrible thing that just happened, okay, we just had our anniversary, if you will, memorial of 9-11, 2,977 people lost their lives uh, as a result of Islamic terrorism here 22 years ago. So if somebody raises that, what about that? What about the problem of evil? Now, pause for a moment uh, just to fill you in on something. In the game plan, the very first step of the game plan is to simply gather information. When people are pushing back on you, you don't want to try to answer questions or take on challenges or think about leading that person to Christ. That's that's anxiety producing. You're right. in the anxiety room there, Shauna. You want to gather information. You want to get intel. But you want them to clarify their challenge, Okay. So here's, I'll give you one way that I would approach the problem of evil, 9-11, whatever people bring that up, because it's the main one. Just so you know, and this is critical, if we're going to use questions to demonstrate the weakness of somebody else's view or to deflect a challenge, which is what Street Smarts is, then we need to know the weakness. <laughs> and so in each chapter, whether it's abortion or atheism or the problem of evil or Bible problems or Jesus problems or, you know, sex, marriage, gender problems, these are all in the book. I spend a lot of time showing here's where their view goes south. Here's what's wrong with it. Okay. Now, you know, it's wrong with it. Now we're going to map out a tactical approach to dealing with it that uses questions. So here is the way I would respond to that. What about the problem of evil? That's the challenge. I say, what about it? I just put the ball right back in their court. (laughs) Why? I want them to keep talking. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. Well, it's a problem for you, isn't it? Uh, How so? What's the problem? I want them to map it out. Sure. Okay. Well, if God is powerful and if he's good, if he's powerful, he would be able to get rid of evil. If he's good, he would want to get rid of evil. That actually right there is a misstep. Okay. I'm just saying, I'm not going to carry that out right now, but that's actually philosophers understand that's not actually true anymore. God could allow evil for a good reason. So that kind of sabotages the whole argument. But I'm not going there in this case. I'm going somewhere else. And this dialogue is in the Street Smarts book. Okay. If God were powerful, he'd be able to. If you're good, he'd want to. But there still is evil, so God doesn't exist. So he said, let me ask you a question. Let's say you're right. There is no God. 
Okay. The things that you just described that are evil, you know, like Holocaust and mass murder and rape and torture and all of that stuff. Does that still happen? Of course it happens. Well, is it still evil? Yes, it's evil. That's why I don't believe in God. Okay, got it. Now, God's out of the picture, but evil still exists in the world. Can you explain to me how you as an atheist answer the problem of evil? You see, the thought behind this is that the problem of evil is not a theist problem. It's a human problem. It doesn't matter where you live or when you live. Everybody knows that something's wrong with the world. Mm -hmm. And when they say it's wrong with the world, they're not saying, I just don't like it. You know, like the relativist thing. Well, that's not my truth kind of thing. They're saying that's wrong. That ain't right. It shouldn't happen, even if people thought it's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this is our intuitive response to massive evil in the world. Okay. But in order to have evil in the world, you have to have some kind of transcendent set of standards that allow us to distinguish good from evil, that define the difference. And if you're going to have a set of standards, those have to come from somewhere. Sure. Okay. Moral obligations are held between people. So you, you can see I'm starting to refer now piece by piece to the moral argument for the existence of God. In order for there to be broken laws, problem of evil, there has to be laws. In order to be laws, there has to be lawmakers. Okay. But an atheist lives in a materialistic world. It's just molecules in motion. That's it. That's their view, characteristically, of atheists. Okay, now what? Fine. Okay, I get it. You don't believe in God. Now we got him out of the picture, but you haven't gotten rid of the problem of evil. So now it's your turn. You tell me how you explain the problem of evil. And in fact, how can you even make a coherent given your worldview? This is why the chapter on this issue, and I go into more detail in the chapter, I call it evil atheism's fatal flaw. It's not Christianity's fatal flaw. It's atheism's fatal flaw. And so I'm just going to use the question to push it back on them. And here's the characteristic response. It's the only response they can give. Objective evil is an illusion. There is no such thing as objective good and objective evil. That's consistent with atheism. But the problem is, wait a minute, you don't believe in God because you see objective evil in the world. And now you're telling me that it's an illusion? Mm -hmm. You're going to tell 99% of the population of the world that there's really nothing wrong going on? See how counterintuitive that is. Now, notice, I'm not going to ask him to bend his knee and pray to receive Christ. What am I doing? I'm taking a big, giant rock, and I'm putting it in his shoe, and I'm going to let it sit there. And then let's see what God does with that. You see, my job is to put the stones in the shoe. It's God's job to make the difference. The thing that makes us anxious is we feel like we have to prove our end of things. And what I'm hearing you say is, let the burden of proof be with them. Well, it depends on the circumstance. Here's the rule about burden of proof. And this okay. is actually the second step. The first step of the game plan is to uh, gather information, find out what their view is, and get as much information as you can. The second step is to reverse the burden of proof. Now, the burden of proof rule is the person who makes the claim bears the burden. Okay. So if you say something is controversial is true, well, it's your job to give reasons why you think it's true. It's not my job to refute it. So if an atheist says to me, well, there is no God, he's making the claim. Sure. So I can ask him, well, what kind of God don't you believe in? So I can get more clear on this. That's the first step. Then the second step, okay, now I understand what you don't believe in. What are your reasons? 
How did you come to that conclusion? Tell me the rationale why you're convinced God doesn't exist. Okay, again, I'm just asking a question to get clarification. I'm the curious guy, right? I'm not making my case. But when they make the claim, I do not want to give them a free ride. I don't want to take the responsibility on myself to disprove them. Now, in the third step, Shauna, we are going to use questions to make a point. And that means we are going to show the substance of of being street smart, where we are going to show that they are mistaken. We're going to give reasons why, but we're going to use questions to get there. And there's a little art to that, which is what I explain in the book, and also give the dialogues and the questions regarding the rationales that I explain relative to any particular issue that we discuss in the book, that range of issues that we confront. So to use the third step, you have to know something, okay? But a lot of this stuff is very intuitive. Once people see what's going on, they realize it's a lot easier to maneuver. Somebody says, well, you you are so judgmental, it's wrong to judge. You're so judgmental. And then I might ask, what's wrong with that? That's a clarification question. Mm-hmm. Well, it's wrong to judge. You really convinced of that? Yes, absolutely. Well, if it's wrong to judge, then why are you judging me right now? <laughs> you notice that's a, a, a Jordan Peterson had a famous conversation like that. You might be familiar with with that that female uh, news person, and he just asked the question. He says, "You like you're doing right now?" And she was speechless. She didn't know what to do. But the fact is that the person making that challenge is actually doing what they say that you shouldn't do. It's a self-refeating circumstance. I call that the suicide tactic. (laughs) But notice that instead of saying, you just did the same thing you said you shouldn't do, now that's an accusation, okay? Instead, I ask a question. If you think judging is wrong, then why are you judging me right now? A mic drop, right? It's a dead air. There's nothing else to say. Now, I say mic drop, because, but I'm a little uncomfortable with the term because it's like, now I gotcha, you know, stick you with it. We don't want a gotcha mm-hmm. in that sense. These are not gladiator moments, mm-hmm. but we do want them to be stuck once they realize the foolishness of their statement. That's the stone in the shoe. That's what we want them thinking about. And I'm telling you, this really works. If I, if I could add this really quickly, and we talked about this uh, off the air, Jay Warner Wallace, a lot of people know him as the author of Cold Case Christianity, okay? Uh, but Jim is a very close friend of mine. I've known him a long time. And what they don't know about Jay Warner Wallace is that they might know that he was a cold case detective and an atheist and then use his skills, his substantial skills as a de- detective to apply them to the gospel eyewitness accounts and came convinced that they were reliable and that Jesus rose from the dead, became a Christian and then an apologist and then a best-selling Christian author. What most people don't know is that Jim was in my garden when he was an atheist. And there's a lot of people like that. I know that many people would recognize their names. It just turned out, I'm just gardening and Jim's in my garden. I didn't lead him to Christ. I haven't prayed with anybody to receive Christ in over 30 years. But Jay Warner Wallace was in my garden. The former Muslim Abdu Murray, now apologist and writer, was in my garden too. One of my staff members was in my garden, an atheist, and now an apologetic speaker, John Noyes. You know, what, what happened? Well, somebody went in my, my garden and harvested my crop. That's what that's what happened. You know, yeah. get out of my garden, right? That's not <laughs> get my off attitude. my lawn. <laughs> yeah, Jesus said, "The one who sows and the one who reaps can rejoice together." Mm-hmm. That's in John chapter four. So, uh, my encouragement is for people to be gardeners, 
use the gardening tools in the uh, Street Smarts book, and they're substantial. They work. They, they make a huge difference. They make your life so much easier because you're not making statements for which you get attacked. You are actually asking the kinds of questions that's going to take you in the direction that you need to go to get people thinking. And that's the main thing. Is there a two-minute story that you could share where it just goes through this whole process, like a personal story? This will show us right. what this looks right. like in real life. I can do that. It's actually a story of the first step of the game plan, and just to encourage people how effective this is, okay? And, and this is in the Street Smarts book, and there's other stories in there. This one comes to mind as being a particularly effective one because... I'm not a morning person, okay, just saying, here I am laboring at uh, O'Dark 30 here in California. What I tell people is before my first cup of coffee, I'm actually an atheist. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I get up in the morning, it's a Sunday morning, I'm in Seattle, I'd done work Friday night and all day Saturday at a conference or other speakers, but I work really hard, I was really tired. Plus, that morning I had to go and preach at a church, two services. So I bring my roller bag out of the hotel. I'm about to check out. I'm getting, want to sit down and get some coffee. And I do not want to talk to anybody. I don't want to talk about God. I don't want to talk about Jesus. I don't want to witness. I, leave me alone. Get my food. Don't talk to me. That's my attitude early on. Okay. So this gal comes up to me, the waitress, and she's way too exuberant for that time of the morning, you know, and she's, oh, hey, what are you doing in Seattle? It's so great to have you, blah, blah. And I went, oh my gosh, it's too much for me. So she says, what are you doing? And I, I told her, I'll get rid of her. I'm going to preach at a church in, a, in an hour, you know, or something like that. Oh, Good. Why would she think that good? I thought I was good. she would go away. And I said, well, are you a Christian? She said, no, I used to be a Christian, but I'm not. Now, she said, the universe takes care of me. Now, I can't figure out what she's talking about. And so I, I said, what do you mean the universe takes care of you? Is the universe a person? No, the universe is not a person. Well, how can the universe take care of you then? And it's, I'm just curious. Sure. You know, Here are the questions coming out. This is the game plan coming out. I'm not even trying. I don't want to talk. Okay. And she said, no, the universe is not a person. How can it take care of you? Well, I guess, hmm, she's thinking, maybe, I I mean, God takes care of me. Oh, okay. I got that. And God is the universe. What? What is that? (laughs) Inside, I'm all confused, but I'm just trying to be polite, asking her questions. Well, I can't make sense of her view at all. She keeps saying these things that make no sense. I keep asking questions. Finally, she leaves. Okay. I think, thank God. All right. (laughs) I can enjoy my meal in peace. Then she comes back and brings a check at the end of breakfast. And she says this to me. She said, nobody has asked me any questions about my view before. (laughs) And it got me thinking. Is that an OMG moment, right? Like, I was trying not to witness. Sure. (laughs) But nevertheless, just those simple questions drawing her out about her view. That's the first step of the game plan. You're just gathering information, trying to get clarity. But this happens frequently. People will say things about their own view, and it turns out they don't even know what they, they can't characterize it in a way that makes sense. Because a lot of these views don't make sense. People are repeating what they have heard other people say. They have not thought about it. And so when you ask them, well, what do you mean by that? First first question, or how did you come to that conclusion? Second step of the game plan. A lot of times you're going to get dead air, mm-hmm. you know, crickets, because mm-hmm. they've never thought about it. And just the fact that I asked some questions, no risk on me, 
in the shallow end of the pool. I had nothing to defend. It got her thinking about her view. God used that. I think that the thing, even the the word apologetics brings up yeah. the idea that we're going to enter into a heated conversation or we're going to go toe-to-toe about something. But And what right. we say matters. It really does. And we want to be prepared to step into the conversation and... But how we say what we say matters too. Can you talk yes. a little bit about how we can continue to show them Jesus in the conversation outside of what we're right. saying? Yes. And in fact, if you think of the passage that most often quoted about doing apologetics, First Peter chapter 3, 16, I think, sanctify Christ says, Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense for anyone who asks you to give an answer for the hope that's within you. That word defense is the apologia word where we get apologetics. But it keeps going. Peter says, yet with gentleness and reverence. How'd that get in there? Who <laughs> put that there? Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, the Lord's bondservant should not be quarrelsome, but patient when wrong. So there's a biblical admonition to be virtuous. But I'll tell you something, being virtuous is not only good, it's effective. When you are relaxed and you're going to be relaxed when you have a game plan and you know how to execute it, and this is not hard. I've had so many people tell me, this has changed my life. That's the phrase I hear over and over, and I've spoken to thousands and thousands of people on this material. This has changed my life because it's altered the dynamics so they don't have to get in fights. They don't have to get banging heads. It's not a gladiator moment. And they can manage the conversation if they use questions wisely. And when they have a game plan, they're more confident and they're less likely to get mad. Thanks so much for listening. Questions or comments? Text us at 800-968-8930. That's 800-968-8930. 